and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and today I am joined by my friend Eric Cook for a discussion of Alfred Hitchcock's Cycle, the first in our series on Alfred Hitchcock movies. Eric is a teacher of history in a charter academy in North Carolina. He is an organ player in a local church and indeed a pipe organ builder if you can believe it. He is an American eccentric scholar gentleman and at the same time a boy from working class roots in rural western Pennsylvania. He also scores silent films and plays with his Ivy Leaf Orchestra. Thank you, Titus, for that very kind introduction. And yeah, today we're going to talk about Hitchcock's great film Psycho, and I hope we get into a lot of different things, including the famous Bernard Herrmann score. Eric is particularly suited to talk about the score, and of course I will defer to him on that matter. But first things first, we'll start with the unusual setting for a movie famous, memorable even now for shocking scenes. It has an incredibly banal beginning that is at the same time telling. The more you pay attention to what happens in the setting, the more the rest becomes predictable which of course for some might spoil the movie, but I imagine that since it's released in 1960, everyone has seen it. And I think Titus would agree with this, is that one of the things that's so powerful about this film is that Hitchcock plans it so carefully, especially in terms of things, set dressing and camera direction, that if you pay attention, even though he's busy misdirecting you, the audience, the whole time, he's still spelling it out for you if you have the eyes to see it, and if you follow it through, it does add up. Yes, I put this to Hitchcock's superficiality. This is one of the things I love about him. If you pay attention to what's staring you in the face, you learn a lot. If you're constantly trying to dig through surfaces to get to something deeper, to figure out what's coming ahead, you'll be too surprised. So the first two scenes are a view of modern Phoenix in 1960. It looks like a crane shot or a chopper shot that pans over this booming city. That was the decade when Phoenix, Arizona went from about 100,000 people to more than 440,000. It's modern America, it's post-war America, it's prosperity, it's all sorts of new possibilities, it's freedom. And it turns out to be the setting for a horror. That's part of what's set up in the first shot. The second shot transforms into something that's not at all public, it's very private. It's peeking through a barely open blind into a private room. And that's how you go from the great city to who actually lives in it. And there doesn't turn out to be any correspondence between the two. We follow this great sweeping shot that takes us up and leads us very voyeuristically through the window, a shot that I think Hitchcock, the screenwriter, came up with the scenario. But when Hitchcock films it, it's very clear that he's reaching back into his silent film director days and thinking of the great uh, King Vidor 1928 movie, The Crowd, another film that deals with going off to the city in hopes of aspirations and liberal success and finding yourself in corruption and disappointment. And we move into this adulterous afternoon tryst between our lead characters, Marion and These people are unaffected in certain ways by the changes in the city. They've certainly not benefited from the great success of Phoenix in the 50s. In fact, they're stuck. They're falling apart. They don't have a future. The opening shot looks like the future. But they themselves don't have any kind of future and in fact are beginning to feel a kind of moral corruption set in. They're fairly depressed, actually. There's nothing erotic about their tryst. No, this is a very seedy, unpleasant hotel. Marion, Janet Lee is playing Marion Crane, and she says, you know, this is the sort of place, they don't care who you are when you check in, but you better leave on time at 3 p.m. We find out that she's involved with this. her boyfriend, is a divorcee, played by John Gavin, and has no intention of marrying her, and I think this leads us nicely into the reasons why. They're both unhappy because they're haunted by respectability. The woman is ashamed of what she's doing. She loves the man, but she wants respectability. She wants to marry him. And he is haunted by respectability in a different way. He doesn't want to marry her because it will be a shameful existence. He's poor and he feels humiliated by his divorce. The woman is taking his alimony. He does think his ex-wife has a future. She might marry again, he says. He sees no future for himself. She took a lot of his dignity in the divorce, and so he's stuck in the past and ashamed of himself. That's what they have in common, aside from the fact that they love each other. 
none of them can conceive of a future because respectability stands in their way. And this sets up a great conflict between being innocent and being respectable. They're trying to claw their way back out into the open to stop hiding. And in this scene, you see them stop hiding from each other. They start telling each other their true hopes and aspirations and their fears. They show themselves in their vulnerability. They're not trying to put on a show anymore. When you see the rest of the movie, how much suspicion, how much investigation there is, how appearances deceive, this is really the only scene where people are more or less what they seem. And within that, we have two internal conflicts that are brewing, too. We have within Sam this desire to set things right, but he can't decide whether or not he, you know, he's had this sort of trysting relationship and is it going to go deeper? And it's obvious that Marion Crane is much more in love with him at this point. And she has to decide whether she wants out of this because he's not willing to take the step to go deeper or what can she do to allow it to go deeper? And of course, that sets up the great dilemma for her that comes in the next scene as well. Yes, this is just an afternoon tree, so it's back to work for everybody. At work, you see this environment of men and women who put on a show and who are trying to scrape by life in a way that protects them from other people. The two characters that matter here are her colleague, whose typical lines are, you go on your wedding night on tranquilizers. If the husband finds out, he won't like it, but you know. For her, eroticism has been a disappointment from the start. Now, on the other hand, when some client coming in doesn't make a pass at her, but only at the other woman, this married woman says, well, it must be the ring. She took to her marriage with tranquilizers, but on the other hand, holds on to the respectability of the ring to lie to herself about the fact that she's not really attractive to strangers. That's right. And the woman that plays that, you may remember, is the daughter of Alfred Hitchcock. Yes. Uh, so it's this really delicious sort of thing here, right? Pat Hitchcock's playing this repressed, unhappy, drugged-up co-worker who's jealous that this Arizona oil man doesn't flirt with her. Yeah, and then, as you said, she's a pill pusher. That's her solution to things. Yes, because very modern American, too, and especially mid-20th century. I mean, we still deal with that, right? We're going to solve our problems with, we'll give the boy a pill, you know? Yep. Well, if you're poor, you have pain, and you deal with it by pills. Yes. If you're rich, you don't have that problem, and that brings us to the other character, the oil man. What's his deal? Well, he's there to expose everybody's corruption. He points out that Marion's boss keeps a bottle of bourbon in his desk drawer. Oh, yes, it's shocking. He says words to that effect, isn't it? He tries to peel back and expose all of these people's corruption. At the same time, like you said, with his wealth, he protects his own daughter, so he thinks, from corruption by buying her everything. And he claims that she's never known an unhappy day in her life because of his money. Yep. That's what he says. Money keeps unhappiness away. Money does for the rich what pills do for the poor. And he tries to tempt our heroine as well. He makes a pass at her that's shockingly incestuous. He's talking about my girl. And he then mm -hmm. explains when he sees her shock that I don't mean you, I mean my daughter. But then spends the next part of the scene staring at her in the most leering way. Yeah. One of the things that crops up over and over again in this film, again worth paying attention to, is the use of names. You know, here he is, Tom Cassidy, combining Tom Mix and Hopalong Cassidy, two great cowboy characters in this corrupt Mephistophelian tempter. Yeah, he's the only guy who looks like a cowboy. Yes. And he does bring a kind of out-of-the-city lawlessness with him. He yes. thinks he can do as he please. He doesn't obey rules. He's also the only guy running around with money. City people are shocked at such a big transaction, and their solution is to go to a bank. This yes, guy to, being to, a kind of heir to bank robbers, he has absolutely no care about that sort of thing. He calls it his private money. And his proposal, the other attempt to tempt and corrupt the woman, is a weekend in Vegas. Also yes. a place where there are no rules. Yes. And, and a place where cash and the flow of money, you know, obviously are important. And so, of course, this leads to you know, the temptation of Marion Crane. is She is entrusted to deliver this money to the bank. And what is she going to do with it? Yep, that's the boss's solution. The boss doesn't want a cash transaction because it's risky and he hates danger. But on the other hand, he doesn't want to lose a client. Right. And so you get this halfway house. He has the woman take the money to the bank. Later, he tells himself, well, when somebody works for you for 10 years, you trust them. That's, That's right. He excuses himself. He's, in a certain sense, innocent. But he does need an excuse because he wanted to pass the problem on to somebody else. The truth he confesses is that he was scared of the money. Put it on somebody else's shoulders. 
And this gets back to this issue of respectability. Again, he's not going to risk losing a client. That's an unrespectable thing to do, to disrespect the client. And so again, we're going to see the transfer of responsibility or the negation of responsibility behind the mask of respectability. Yep. And this is how the corruption of Marion Crane is affected. Privately, she doesn't have a chance at marriage. And publicly, these older men, who are the only men in town, are tempting her and pushing on her their own fears. It's important, as you noticed when we're talking, that she has no father. Mm -hmm. She has a mother and a sister, but no father. And the moral authority is the mother, right? Very important. And one of the things we also notice is that this is a film that's lacking in fathers and father figures almost entirely. Yes. You just have the boss who abdicates any responsibility of his own. Instead of taking the risk himself, he pushes it on the girl. And the other out-of-towner who's all about the risk because he thinks about having his own way. Yes. And the one father we do see is an emblem of utter corruption, of course, and that's Tom Cassidy's character. Yeah. He thinks he can buy stuff for his daughter, including a house in town. She's about to get married. This also seems to humiliate Marion, who herself cannot be getting married, much less have anybody buy her a house. Instead, she has to waste her time in motels. And this obviously grates on her. There's something else, I mean, just to get a measure of this Mephistophelian character and his apparent innocence, his characteristic joke is, it's hot in here as hot as fresh milk. No, that's a cowboy reference, but it's also a breast reference. Yes. That's how he hides his incipient evil. And of course, (laughs) where do we think of places being hot? And Phoenix, I mean, is a bird born in fire, too. And we uh, then get to this interior shot of Marion's bedroom. And one of the things that strikes me is Hitchcock's use of wall decorations. Earlier, when she's confronted by Tom Cassidy and her boss, who's kind enough to let her go home with a headache, there's this great modernist painting in the office of a series of male faces all staring at Marion. And she arrives in her bedroom where Hitchcock uses the limitation. He's on a very small budget for this film. I think $800,000 because the studio did not like the subject matter of the film. And so he's working in black and white. And here's a great way where she plays with his limitations. So we see her in the tryst in a white bra and white clothes and a white purse. And now she's deciding what is she really going to do with this money? And of course, she's going to steal that money. And suddenly we see her in a black slip and a black bra and a black purse. But this is conducted in her bedroom, which on one set of walls are all of these innocent baby toddler pictures, presumably of her and perhaps her sister. And on the other wall, we see these portraits of the cowboy figure there, might be her father, and also her mother. And earlier in the tryst, when Sam says, well, let's go back to your place and quit meeting in a hotel, she says, well, what about my sister? And he says, well, we can get rid of her. We can turn your mother's portrait to the wall. So here, as you pointed out in her earlier conversation, caught between innocence and respectability, she's got to make this decision. Is she going to deposit this money or is she going to flee and steal this money? Yeah, I'll add just one more joke to this. The boyfriend, Sam Loomis, he says, we'll send your little sister off to the movies. Yes, yes, that's right, yes. What is she going to see at the movies? That might not be all that respectable either. Yeah. She does seem to have no way out. And when she realizes this, it's because she takes offense and opportunity at the same time at that devilish figure. This sends her out of the city, and from that first decision to steal the money, her options are being narrowed continuously. She's hunted down by respectability and hounded by it first. Yes. Everybody she meets scares her worse, and she can never summon up a kind of moral courage to take the suffering. You know, if you think about the crime she's committed and what she's hoping to accomplish, of course, if you start to think about it rationally, none of it makes any sense. It can't work. And that's a part of the problem with this situation she finds herself in. And of course, so she flees town and she gets so tired that she falls asleep on the side of the road and which Hitchcock introduces this great scene and this brief character and, and this policeman shows up. And for a film that is really, you know, incessant on eyes and gazes and points of view, we see this policeman and, you know, here, if we know what's going to happen to her later, and if we've seen the film once, if we know how it's going to end, here's the policeman who could deliver her from the danger she's about to find herself in. But of course, because of what she's done, she's terrified by him. But Hitchcock and his brilliance, he makes us dislike the character as well. 
He's shown in close-up. He wears thick, dark eyeglasses, which we can't see his eyes. The angle presents him as a figure of menace so that we are drawn into the crime and perspective of Janet Lee's character. And so we're sympathetic to her and her desire to flee from this man who then pursues her. And at one point she thinks she ditches him and she ends up in the arms, as it were, of a used car salesman. Yeah, there's deliverance. (laughs) (laughs) America's favorite character. You're right, the policeman is actually the only guy whose eyes you cannot see. He gives authority, police, the city, this incredibly ugly look. Mm -hmm. And he's the worst of respectability in a practical sense. He doesn't arrest her on suspicion or search or trying to interrogate her. He just wants to scare her. Yes. And he follows her around in this menacing way that never really adds up to anything, but multiplies the fears to which she's already succumbing. And so very quickly she moves from an interior dialogue where she imagines what her boyfriend will say when she meets him. She wants to Mm -hmm. run away. Of course, she's going to paradise from sunburned Arizona, which is a desert, to California, which is a paradise. Who doesn't want to live in California? Well, that doesn't turn out well for her. But the interior monologue changes before anything else. She's afraid when once her boss spots her in a car at the pedestrian crossing, then the cop follows her around, gets her registration and her number. So there's all this trail that she knows is going to add up. And she's already afraid on Friday afternoon and Saturday, what's going to happen Monday morning? Right. Your freedom, your running away is really a weekend affair, but official public life with all its threats in her case because she committed a crime is going to all start again on Monday morning. And this drives her to a used car salesman to change her car. She thinks that if you change your car, you can get away. It's America. A car is freedom and it's freedom of the soul. She's in such a hurry to buy a car that she won't take it for a spin, she won't take a look at it, she won't haggle over the price. And the used car salesman shows this combination of corruption and respectability. He wants to give her as many chances as he can so that there won't be any trouble for him. Yes, and he doesn't want any trouble because he suspects that something's very wrong, but neither will he really engage her here either. Just like her boss, he can't turn away a client but he's wary at the same time of dangers. He says, you know, the first client of the day is always the most trouble. Yes. But he can't say no. He says, I'll just make you such a sweet deal, you don't have anything to complain about. But of course, what he proceeds to do is what he always does, try to take advantage. But when he sees that he can, that she doesn't push back, he starts suspecting her and treating her badly. What kind of woman is she to accept his proposals? It's remarkable. His estimation of his own qualities all of a sudden comes into view. He knows that at some level he's a bad guy. He expects therefore Um, to be treated in a certain way with a certain rejection. When that is not forthcoming, he starts despising her. Yeah, so here we have John Anderson playing California Charlie, right? His name is California. I think his manhood, in a sense, is threatened by this, right? She won't haggle with him. She won't engage with him. She just wants to give him the money and go. And, yeah. and why doesn't she put up a fight? What kind of woman is she? Yeah, exactly. Hilarious. And, of course, it's full of hilarious stuff. Like when the guy says, first client of the day, always the most trouble. Well, the first client you see at her now former job really is a lot of trouble. It's, it's quite Mephistophelian, as you aptly put it. And this is the final straw for her. She runs away scared of mechanic and cop who are there together talking. And that's it for this one world. She moves into another world that's kind of past. She's on the highway. It's raining heavily. She's blinded by the lights of incoming traffic. And in all this confusion with all her fears, she ends up somewhere quiet. That's the Bates Motel. Yes, and as you pointed out, and as others have noticed, the Bates Motel is a place that time has forgotten. The highway has changed. She's off on the old highway, and she's now in a place where the lights are kept on as a mere formality. Again, respectability. We just go through with the motions, even though there's no longer any life here in a sense. Yeah, we'll have to get to that because Norman Bates is so interesting for his horror irony. There's such a thing as tragic irony. When you hear Oedipus talking in Oedipal tragedies, he says truths he himself doesn't understand. That's also true of Norman Bates. He says true things that he doesn't quite understand. It revealed him. If only somebody would pay attention, but nobody pays attention, of course. And he does say that we light the lights and we do the formalities. 
that's the appearance of things and as we saw in the city it tends to punish some people for no good reason and it prevents the community from helping them out or even caring people are in incredible ways alone and fearful and in this case there's a far more terrible mystery hiding behind formality the look of the thing is pretty suspicious but what kind of person do you have to be to have a suspicious mind respectability always pulls you back and tells you to say to yourself no this has got to be fine yes i'm a bad person for being suspicious and of course marion has gone from one motel room to another and of course as you pointed out in our earlier conversations that the motel itself the motor hotel i mean it speaks of mobility and anonymity the landscape isn't dominated by the motel though what is it dominated by of course the bates mansion yep and that's taken from an edward hopper painting how all american is that Yes. House by a railroad. Instead of the railroad, in this case, there's the highway. Actually, two highways, the old and the new, and your perspective is caught in between them. In the painting, the railroad separates you from the house and removes something from how impressive the house is and insists on how lonely and unpopulated it is. It doesn't look quite fit for human dwelling. Whereas in this case, you've already crossed that limit. And now you're dominated by this residence on a hill. To remove from you vertically, and that makes it so much more impressive. And throughout the film, Hitchcock plays with these vertical and horizontal lines from the opening title credits Samuel Bass created for him. And then, you know, you've got the vertical and the horizontal of the hotel and the mansion. So there's always this order in the visual design, except where there are times when there are angles and circles, and we can. Mm-hmm. So Marion needs to check in. She wants a refuge from the night and from her travels. And so she's gone into this motel where, of course, we do meet Anthony Perkins playing Norman Bates. Yeah, that's his star turn. Yes. He's at some level a monster. At another level, somewhat engaging, self-deprecatory, warm, and affable, mannered young man. He comes off almost as an ingenue in many ways. There's a lot of innocence in his look. Yeah, and Hitchcock knew that, and thinking about the script, he had in mind Anthony Perkins already. He is brilliantly cast, and he plays the part brilliantly, and Hitchcock, with both camera angles and lighting, as we'll see, does wonderful things with him. Of course, at the same time, we've got this name Norman Bates, right? Names are very important in this film. We've got the Crane, Marion Crane. Yeah, after one of those ugly jokes. The yeah. boy's hobby is stuffing birds, then he runs into a girl called Crane. What did yes. you know it? And, of course, his name is Norman and his mother's name is Norma. There is an example of monstrous reproduction, a suggestion of incest by names alone. Exactly. She's trying to go to Fairvale in California. Wouldn't that be great? (laughs) There's a nice place to be, but you can't get there, it turns out. No, you can't. And, of course, her name Mary is redolent of Christianity and the naming traditions of an older America where biblical names dominated. And we even see that in her love interest as Samuel, who should be a prophet who should see things. But ironically, as she's traveling to meet him, he's busy writing a letter to her saying, let's get married anyways. Never mind the money. We'll make it together. Harkening back to her offer to lick the envelopes or the stamps that he sends out with his alimony check. Yeah. And so you see that he learns from her example of self-deprecation, of self-humiliation. She'll tolerate the fact that there's another woman who has power over his money and dignity. And now he's trying to answer that with a sacrifice of his own, but it turns out not to be that easy. So it yeah. seems like a world where you can have trysts in motels lies to you in a certain way, because you think there are still rules that maybe you break some of the laws, but you're still safe. You may step out of them, but they'll always be there for you to come back. It may Mm -hmm. hurt a little when you come back. You might have to pay a price or step on your pride, but they're there. You can trust them. But it turns out that corrupting your own innocence in a way and letting circumstances corrupt you opens you up to other kinds of corruptions. And from a certain point of view of individual right, typical of the city, a country, a system of justice, these people do not deserve what's coming to them. The plot suggests there's another way of looking at this. These people live a liberated life that's typical of the city where you are anonymous. All houses are motels in the city in the sense that they're temporary. Whereas here you have a radical separation of house and motel, and that brings back this older order before liberal individualism of a stately manner that's supposed to last through time and house a kind of rule. 
the generations have to live there. There's no point in building something on that scale if it's just going to be used for a little while. For temporary stuff, a motel will do. And indeed, the Bates family is still there. That's right. Multi-generations. <laughs> yeah. Life has passed them by, but they can't let go of the past. That's Norman's line that I think nobody runs from their traps. In fact, right. you are trapped in your trap and all you can do is acknowledge it is his view. So you have on the one hand a view where change is as easy as skipping town. You can run out of Arizona, go into California, all your crimes will be forgotten. Or you can skip back. It'll be a bit painful, but it's fine. And this other view where nothing ever changes. It's not an accident that this other view that has an old-style Victorian California manner for a setting is so reminiscent of the old world of Europe. Mm -hmm. One of the things, speaking about this issue of respectability, historians talk about the cult, I mean, and they use the word cult, of Victorian respectability, this huge emphasis in the 19th century in an upper middle class America placed on uh, respectable forms of behavior, of dress, of demeanor. And when we get into the Bates mansion, we're going to find that its furnishings conform to a T to those expectations. It's well kept. It's maintained on the interior in a way that insists that these forms matter and have value. But as we see, they're hiding a deep corruption. Yep. And the bridge between these two is that Marion is invited to have something to eat with Norman. And he goes up to the mansion and he has an argument with his mother that she's able to overhear, in which she uh, denounces this as an attempt at a sexual assignation and denounces Norman for even thinking of such a thing. And so he retreats from the mansion back to what he calls the parlor. Again, a very old fashioned word, right? We don't use the word parlor even in the 1960s to this parlor behind the hotel office to eat. And his office, in contrast to the sort of nondescript furnishings in the rest of the motel interiors, his office is furnished with castaway Victorian furniture and artwork and knickknacks and, of course, his stuffed birds. And there he and Marion are confined in this wonderfully, carefully calibrated conversation about their individual traps. Yep. And as you said, Norman says, well, all you can do sometimes is like a bird, scratch and claw at the air, and but you can't escape. And Marion believes that this is the opportunity looking at Norman, seeing someone in a worse trap she believes in him, although she has no idea how bad, that this is her chance to change and get out of her trap by going back to Phoenix and writing what she's done wrong. And this comes out in their conversation. But as we see, if you pay attention to what's in that room, Hitchcock is telling us there's a lot more going on here. Yeah, she thinks that she's the spectator to a scene, like we as an audience expect to be the spectator to a scene. And in that sense, the movie plot would work like this. Girl is in trouble, but she has honest desires and hope for the future. She does something stupid, and then she learns the error of her ways. And that's where we are, almost halfway through the movie. Now you expect her to somehow find her way back. But that's not the movie we're going to have today. No. And as you pointed out, Hitchcock brilliantly has layered two different dramatic structures on top of each other in this film. And we're coming toward the climax on one level of a two-act structure where we think this is going to be the turning point. And like you said, we would expect at this point in a Hitchcock film her to have to go through all sorts of trials and tribulations, but to get back and resolve things, sort of like in North by Northwest. But yes. that's not what he's going to do here. No, the trouble deepens. Act by act, there are more revelations on the one hand of the problem of respectability, on the other hand of the problem of what secretly corrupts innocence. Halfway through the movie, of course, is the shocking murder of Marion Crane. That's the scene that's most memorable, most lauded, most remembered, what have you. It's not what Hitchcock himself liked best. He was focusing most on his ending, and we'll get to see mm -hmm. why. But this is the one that the public stuck with. And, ha, no what, <laughs> <laughs> and what stands in between the murder and this conversation, the way we'll try to explain what goes on in the conversation, because the emphasis changes. The first act is dominated by Marion Crane, and you see the world around her as she moves. Now the world is dominated in a static way by Norman Bates. And you get to see the world he made for himself, or the world that best puts him on display. He stuffs birds, for example, he says, because they're so passive. He doesn't like stuffing animals, especially not house pets, because you expect them to be active, alive, warm, moving, and they're not. Mm -hmm. He has an awareness of the fact that when you try to take control of things, you kill them. And when you can have control over their form, there's no life left. And his solution is to settle for birds. They're possessions, they're of your own making and your control, but on the other hand, they don't feel shockingly lifeless, so you can lie to yourself. 
And the other thing, of course, is the paintings in the room. One of the paintings serves literally as a barrier between his room and her room, between life and death, and between the one part of the movie and the other part of the movie. The painting has often been a source of controversy, but I think it's pretty obvious you can identify it quite clearly now. Also, interestingly enough, in the original trailer for the film, Hitchcock takes you into the parlor of this scene and on the set and says very clearly, speaking directly to the audience in the camera, behind this painting is the key to what's going to happen. And the painting is a Baroque painting by Willem van Mieris. It depicts the assault on Susanna by the elders, which is found in the apocryphal book of Daniel. It's an addition to the book of Daniel that's in Protestant Bibles. It's in Catholic Bibles. Some Lutherans and Episcopalians use it. It's not found in the Jewish scriptures, but it probably was in the Septuagint. And in the story of Susanna and the elders, Susanna is an innocent Jewish woman who goes to take a bath. It's very similar to David and Bathsheba. She is observed by two corrupt elders of the community in exile in Babylon. They proposition her for sex. She refuses. They turn her over for torture and death by stoning. They accuse her of having had an adulterous affair they observed with a young man. At this point, the prophet Daniel steps forth from the crowd and says, Let me examine these two men independently to determine the truth of what they're saying. And he cross-examines them and says, well, this tryst that you observed between this man and this woman, what was the tree that it took place under? And one says a yew tree, the other says oak. And on their discrepancy, their corruption is exposed to the community, and they instead are stoned to death. And Daniel is hailed as a hero. And interesting, this is the scene that Shylock refers to in the great trial scene of Merchant of Venice when he says, behold a second Daniel. And so in the mid-1950s, this story of the voyeuristic corruption hit a chord with a number of people. Picasso paints it in 1955 in a framework that's very similar to what we see with the peeping Tom hole that's behind this painting that Norman uses to spy on Marion Bates as she disrobes before the shower scene. Carlisle Floyd writes the opera Susanna. It's setting it in rural Appalachia and is a big hit on the art music scene in 1955. So Hitchcock takes this biblical scene and uses it as this bridge then into the corruption of this character, Norman Bates. Yeah, in the long trailer, this short six-and-a-half-minute film where Hitchcock introduces the setting in an incredibly comical fashion, he calls this painting something of great importance. And of course, the tendency in the movie is always to dig deeper and deeper, to find out what's happening next, what this scene is hiding about, say, the next scene. And Hitchcock shows you the painting being removed, an eye staring through the peeping hole, and it makes Norman Bates seem like he's the elders staring lustfully at Susanna. In this case, however, the girl has committed a kind of adultery, and Mm -hmm. she does not get rescued. The biblical story is changed because this will not be a moment of providence and prophecy. This will be a moment of wrath. This is Christian horror, where instead of the providence of God, it's the wrath of God that follows on misdeeds or sins or transgressions. But Hitchcock also makes two other points. One of them is, you are Norman Bates. The audience is engaging in this kind of voyeurism. As we said, from the second scene on, all the interior scenes, her apartment, the motel where there's the tryst, her innocent sleeping form spied on by the cop whose perspective the camera assumes for our benefit, And now this perspective, we see as Norman Bates sees through a circular lens, could not make it more obvious that this is not merely an incrimination of Norman Bates or the old antiquated order that's crooked, corrupt, that he embodies perversely. But there's something wrong with the audience. There is a curiosity that's violating innocence. And the other point Hitchcock is making is that we tend to remove surfaces, to get inside of things, to cut to the core, whereas what we should be doing is staring at the surfaces. The painting of Susanna and the elders isn't just there as a comparison for the plot itself. What kind of young woman? Has she committed adultery? Who will be doing the investigation? Will she be delivered? Does she deserve to be delivered? All these questions from the biblical stories define the plot with all the differences to understand the plot and understand it in relation to that story. The symbol, the painting, is an argument in shorthand that you need to work out at length as we are trying to do now. The other thing he's pointing to is paintings. This veterotestamentary scene was a big subject in the Renaissance as well. And there are two other paintings in the parlor that are big Renaissance pieces. Both of them are about the relationship between Aphrodite, goddess of beauty, splendid female nude, and Eros, 
the little child with wings, bow and arrow, who's supposed to be the god of love. Now, one of them is a Tizian painting, which would be incredibly valuable. The other one is a lesser-known piece by the most famous Rococo painter in France, François Boucher, who more or less defined 18th century taste at its height, and who is famous for a great phrase that explained his style of painting, nature is too green and badly lit. <laughs> and uh, a man who liked nature, including its ugly parts, way too much, Hitchcock, is putting this painting on display to show you that there's something wrong with this kind of painting. And he does it in two ways that are related. One of them is he shows you all these scenes where Aphrodite, beauty, emasculates eros, desire. You can look, but you can't touch. The French painting is Aphrodite consoling eros. Eros has failed, desire is impotent, and beauty overwhelms it in this mothering and smothering way. The little boy Eros is obviously angry and won't be consoled, but he can't escape Aphrodite because he's powerless. And she dominates the space. The other one, the Tizian, is Venus with a mirror. In this case, all the desire does is hold up a mirror for beauty. Beauty only loves itself, it cares nothing for anything else. These, of course, bring up the erotic conflict in the Bates residence. This connects to what has been happening in the story, the erotic catastrophe that is Marion's and Sam's failure to marry. These people think that being alone, without parental authorities, in secret, they think that they have liberated themselves from the old laws and are just chafing under what's left of those constraints. But instead they have unleashed new kinds of forces. The young Bates stands for one kind of force, crimes of passion. Without restraints on eroticism, a new kind of violence is coming. And this was just prophetic about the 60s and 70s, of course. The other shows the conservatism of Alfred Hitchcock. The old Bates, Norma as opposed to Norman, shows something that was known to the Bible, to Greek tragedy the dangers of eroticism creating a tragedy in the family. Family could exist apart from the city. Take the biblical story of Lot and his daughters, or of course any of the tragedies of Oedipus. In all of these cases, the family is the place of tragedy, and one of the types of tragedy is erotic. This part of the dark, distant past has also been released by destroying the authority of the fathers who are notoriously absent in this story, and of laws that search into people's lives and keep them away from the darkest dangers of eroticism. This brings us to the second part of these paintings. They give you these beautiful paintings in which beauty, Aphrodite, dominates love. These are objects you can have, but they're supposed to be innocuous. Eros is not supposed to be at all dangerous. It is utterly emasculated as a child. From a fairly Christian conservative perspective, Hitchcock through his plot shows that that's not true. Eroticism is utterly capable of creating monstrosities. And the people should be paying attention to that. But of course you have to pay attention to the surfaces, what's literally visible on screen, rather than trying to go digging deeper through the plot to notice these things. And that is the central point of the movie. Marion Crane is murdered more or less at the half point. She doesn't get an arc, so to speak. It's just a fall. And, of course, you know, Hitchcock used this to great advantage. I mean, you know, he wouldn't allow the audience in. You couldn't be seated late for the film. And he swore everybody on the set to secrecy. The elimination of the star figure from a picture at this point was, I think, almost unprecedented, if not unprecedented, in the studio system. Pretty much. You know, it's interesting, too, in the paintings, when you look at both of them, if you look at Venus consoling Eros, at her feet are a pair of birds, of course. And likewise, another detail is that throughout the film, Marion Crane avoids mirrors. She avoids seeing herself in a mirror. They disturb her. She flees for them both in her home and also in the bathroom when she goes into the bathroom to count out the stolen money to pay for her used car. So she's a, she avoids looking at things on the surface and therefore dooms herself almost. And yet at the same time throughout, the, there's also the sense that she won't do certain things. She doesn't eat. In the tryst, we see an uneaten sandwich. And until she sort of reaches a confessional point in an indirect way with Norman, and she's finally able to eat and, of course, be cleansed in the waters of baptism of the shower. But at that point, as you said, the horror for a Christian is this should be the beginning of Marion Crane's redemption. And instead, it's this snuffing out of her life in a violent tragedy. Yes, you do see her talk to Norman with a new honesty and an attempt to live 
through her mistakes and see them through rather than running away. And she does enjoy that shower way too much. It's clearly a moment of hope for her. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that running outside of the city and running away from the laws by which public life is conducted opens you to dangers you didn't even know existed. And that explains something about watching the movie from the beginning. It starts from such a banal setting that you have to look at with as suspicious minds as ours are because otherwise it seems not necessarily innocent but banal uninteresting you don't see how horror is going to arise out of this up until you ask yourself is pills for the poor and money for the rich really a way to organize a city is this attempt to drive eroticism into seedy commercialism on the one hand and on the other hand into the pretense of respectability is that going to work out it's a city without fathers. It's a city that's all about growing. And some of the outgrowths actually are quite dangerous. And although they're not themselves so corrupt, they lead into other things that are much more corrupt and can't be recognized as such. And now the drama switches from Marion to Norman, and it becomes his picture at this point. Yes, he dominates the discussion in the second act, and as we've tried to show, all of the psychological complexity in the second act is his, and it's shown admittedly in the birds, in the paintings, in the setting, in this strange combination of a fairly handsome, fairly humorous young American boy, affable and shy, and on the other hand, this doom that comes from the old world, European paintings, this incredible manner, and him being stuck in a past before the highway moved and the modern architecture came in. This gives him a depth and sophistication that no other character achieves, and Anthony Perkins does carry it tremendously well. And Hitchcock continues his misdirection for the audience. The first time you see this picture at this point, you assume that Marion has been killed by Norman's mother. And so sympathy begins to build for him as we see him as a dutiful son, respectably trying to protect his mother's reputation this disturbed woman who he lives with and is trapped by. And so he cleans meticulously after the murder and disposes of the body. So here we see him actively engaged as an accessory to crime, but it only initially deepens our sympathy for the character. Well, I would say you become estranged from him. He first talks madly both before and after the murder. He's dangerous, and in between he's a voyeur. It's anger and desire, wrath and lust. It's not that respectable, but I do agree. It does feel like this is not really his fault he meant for the best he was being helpful gracious host self-deprecatory but from then on something changes the third act is dominated by lila marion's sister and her boyfriend sam loomis and their attempt to work out suspicion from the image of respectability and the power it has to run people's lives you have a kind of alternative to it suspiciousness and this suspiciousness meets all sorts of resistances and this is the deepest part of Hitchcock's analysis of this conflict of innocence and respectability. There are two characters trying to find out the truth about Marion's fate who has disappeared for a week. If Marion was going to do something like this, it would most likely be tied up with Sam Lomas. And she arrives in Sam's hardware store, the business that he runs, presumably he's the owner. When she arrives there, the two very interesting details Hitchcock loves these visual puns, and we get one of them that works on many levels, and it can be interpreted, I think, successfully in more than one way. But she arrives there to hear a very respectable middle-class woman discussing the most humane way to eradicate vermin. The quote is, man or insect, so long as it's painless. Yes. And that's such a shocking statement, but on the other hand, isn't that what we're looking for, say, in executions? Whoever executes people anymore has to do it painlessly. Right, right. I think there's a tie in there, too, to the pill pushing, right? Pat Hitchcock character, you know, wants to deaden the nerves, as it were. And we find Sam in his office at the back of the store, and there's a wall between Sam and the store with windows, but there's an additional wall that Hitchcock and his set dressers have placed there of garden rakes and tools and pitchforks. On the one hand, they're sort of bird-like, claw-like. You know, we think of him clawing out of his own trap. And finally, Sam has been to this point a rake in the classic 18th Hogarthian, you know, tradition. And he's also trapped behind his own rakes, as it were. His rakishness have put him in this position. Yes, it's very well set up. Yes. And of course, the other person that comes on the scene almost immediately thereafter is Arbogast, who's this private detective. Yes, Arbogast is the only character who's both public and private. He's a detective, but he's a private detective. 
He does what the cops won't do because they care about respectability, not about getting the facts in this movie. And he has the interest that the private characters do, specifically the sister of Marion Crane, who is as pushy and curious as he is, just much less clever. She yes. thinks, for example, that what happened at the motel was about money, and that's obviously foolish. She has to find a reason for her suspiciousness. She reaches for money because it's the most tolerable reason. It's the only one that doesn't involve any scary things, like we have been discussing. And she's willing to give that up at one point. And it's interesting that Sam, who doesn't want to involve the police because he doesn't want to be involved in issues of diminishing his own respectability, he hangs on to that $40,000 till the very end, almost. Yeah. Money is supposed to replace other motives that would be even darker. And you could see how that makes sense. In the modern world, people don't have wars. They have the wars of Burger King and McDonald's or, you know, Coca-Cola and Pepsi. Wall Street versus Silicon Valley. Money wars. Kinds of wars where nobody has to risk their lives. It's easier to think of things that way. And this brings up something else. Just like there's nobody who wants to take risks for himself or take responsibility for others in this story. As we said, there's no paternal authority, no patriarchy. You also see that the men don't want trouble. They want to avoid thinking as much as possible. All the suspicions come from women and the women have to badger men into doing things. It is the girl that badgers Sam into investigating. It's her suspicions at every point and her sympathy with the detective. She sees that they have something in common and she also sees that he's smarter than her and she tries to follow in his footsteps. But before they can get there, they have to go to the sheriff because Sam Loomis goes all the way to the motel and comes back. This is the only guy who takes a look at that motel and can't be bothered to notice anything. It's amazing. After you see all that happened in that hotel, there are two murders at that point. But this man is thick because he's all about respectability. He doesn't want to get involved in other people's problems. And you can see there are kind of male and female. Male is about establishing property boundaries, but female is about living within those boundaries. So he doesn't want to involve himself in somebody else's something. When the investigator comes into his shop, soon he wants to drive him out because this is his place and he wants to defend it. And so instead of finding out what happens at the motel, they first have to go to the local sheriff of Fairville, California. This guy is also all about respectability. It's even more shocking in his case because he knows of the horrible events that happened 10 years back at the Bates residence, the murder-suicide, he calls it, of Bates's mother and a lover of hers. He also puts the least troublesome construction on things possible. Norman just found them there. He's just a passive spectator. And things just happen that way. He doesn't think that this might have any consequences, doesn't care what it might have done to the boy. The fact that he's alone there is of no importance to him, and he insists on there being no trouble. And even the fact that they keep insisting that there's interaction with a woman who's his mother, knowing that the woman is dead, and only the sheriff's wife registers anything at this point as if, wait a minute, isn't this a little strange that multiple other adults have gone out there and think that there's a woman that's Norman's mother? Yes, in this case, again, it's the woman that pushes the man into something, but all he does is make a phone call, a courtesy call, and it turns out that he'll put up with whatever lie he's told because he can go back to his respectability. This is what pushes Sam Loomis to do what Lila wants, go to the motel. It's the anger, the exasperation of being treated like a child. This is how they end up at the motel and find out the truth. And that leads to bringing Norman to justice, you would think. But then you come to the weirdest part of the movie, the ending. The one thing that uh, Hitchcock kept the most secret. He didn't even give the script for the ending to his crew before he had to film it because he didn't want them to know and he didn't want anybody to say anything. They also maintained the fiction on set that there was a role available for an older female actress to play. As you pointed out, I did not know this, that even Helen Hayes had been bandied about in the pre-press releases and so forth. Yes, this entire fiction was elaborately contrived to hide the truth about who Norman Bates' mother is. And of course, being that the mother turns out to be inside his mind in some way, that Norman and Norma is some perverse form of reproduction, some kind of incest that you never quite note the details of, that's of great importance. And this brings us to this final conflict of innocence and respectability. By this point, after all the destruction, all that's left of innocence is a desire to learn the truth. At this point, everybody knows, yeah, Marion is dead. All these people are dead, but at least there'll be no more dead. That's all that justice can do, put a stop to it. 
but what's left of innocence is finding out the truth, which is what the sister and boyfriend want to find out. Who's gonna stand in their way after they've even overcome the sheriff? A psychiatrist. Yes. Young Mr. Freud, Mr. Pop Psychology. Uh, yeah, I, again, love yeah. it. His name is, you know, yeah. Richmond. Perfect. You know, he's going to be a rich man. He's going to be a psychiatrist. Modern America. We'll put everybody on the couch and we'll give yep. them a pill. Right. And, I mean, yeah. the 50s were the golden age of everybody having a shrink. Yes, exactly. It gave us and, Yeah. So here he comes. They've discovered that Norman, of course, has been keeping this mummified corpse of his mother in the home. He has devolved into uh, this person who inhabits both himself and his mother, his own corrupted mind and soul. Of course, this is exposed. Again, as you said, it's going to take Lila Crane to go into the house and explore from Garrett the cellar. And this psychiatrist is going to wipe this away. hes It's interesting, the reaction of the original screenwriter who created the scene felt that the scene was played all wrong. Oh, uh, Joseph Stefano was the screenwriter. He felt that the psychiatrist was too bombastic. He comes out there like a raconteur. He's going to explain this all the way, make it all make sense for all of us and give us a sense. Ah, so now we know when we leave. And if you stop and think about this penultimate scene with the psychiatrist and the final scene, which is, again, an interior monologue, but this time it's Norman's mother, we quickly realize that we've got two contradictory accounts of what actually took place in this conversation with Norman, that the psychiatrist is revealing the real meaning of what's happened. He basically says that Norman is a corrupted meat robot. There's something wrong with his wiring, and that's what's wrong with him. Yeah, that's very Uh, well put. He explains the events without involving Norman at all. Yes, the consequences of some psychic forces that acted out in him and have been acting out in him with necessity. He has no kind of way of acting for himself. All his cleverness, the insights you find in him, his dialogue, all this stuff is just explained away. This is a correlative scientifically of what politically you see in the sheriff. He was there on the scene, he saw what happened, and he wants to believe that the boy was just a witness, utterly passive, in no way involved in anything dangerous, and also not affected by dangerous things. They both want to explain Norman away, and so both these supposedly practical, in the case of the policeman and theoretical, in the case of the psychiatrist, both accounts of Norman fail utterly because they don't take seriously the problem of evil. No, they don't take seriously the problem of evil, and they also actually don't explain anything at the end. We don't know who killed Norman's mother commit suicide. Did Norman poison them? You know, there's no explanation of what really happens. Yeah, Uh, what happened to Norman's father before the mother and love were killed? Nobody knows these things, but that's Norman. Norman was defined somewhere in between the death of his father and then the death of his mother and lover. And in as much as he's trapped there, nobody cares. No, and no one cares at all. And it's this general uncaringness. And Hitchcock, in the discussions, when they purchased the book, you know, the studio said this is based on Ed Gaines, who is this serial killer in Wisconsin, who's also served as a model for uh, Buffalo Bill and the Silence of the Lambs and so forth. And they said this book is too, we can't, we can't believe this is going to make a, a successful film. And Hitchcock, in his discussions with Stefano, said one of the things that increasingly bothered him about modern America were these supposedly meaningless murders, as if you know, well, if there'd been a robbery, then it, well, then, you know, at least they died for money. And Hitchcock was really bothered by this devaluing of human life. And I think this comes out of his Catholic and Jesuit upbringing. Yeah. And, you know, this is sort of sacramental details that are scattered in the film. And so at the end, we have this modern, secular, psychiatric explanation that, as you said, utterly fails to account for evil and the evil that's in every one of these characters. In the discussion in the parlor, Marion says sometimes we all go a little crazy. And this idea that we all have this ability in us to step into this evil and embrace it. And if we think we're going to hide behind respectability, and that's going to prevent the evil from taking over, we're kidding ourselves. Yep. If anything, the criticism from the point of view of Christianity, are you taking evil seriously, is that respectability will throw innocence to corruption or destruction because it insists so much on being itself respectability. You can look the other way, whatever happens, because you can tell yourself, there is no evil here. Evil is not with me. Evil is somewhere else. Other people have it. Not me. Not me. And that's a shocking thing, but this is what all these explanations are trying to do, to say that some forces caused this to happen. It happened with necessity, but in other sense, it was an accident. Things just turned out that way. The rest of us are fine. The shocking thing here is that the insane Norman Bates gives one account, as it were, in monologue to the camera, to the audience, and another one to the psychiatrist. He's the only one who knows both. And then the audience knows both, which again puts you in his perspective rather than, say, the perspective of the psychiatrist or the sister, the sheriff, the boyfriend, anyone else. Only there do you know what's what. 
And this put me in mind of Shakespearean tragedy, of Greek tragedy. Whatever monstrous thing is done, it'll be told point blank. Because in this case, you don't know these dark origins. And that comports so well with starting and trying to end in such a banal city setting. Trying to say that there's no evil. There's no problem here. This just happened. You have to get over it. Fairville, California got over whatever happened in the Bates residence 10 years back. It's going to get over this one too. In a certain way, people belong to the city and the city just doesn't care. It's only the sister and the boyfriend who really care and pursue this. And of course, the Hitchcock figure, the private detective, who has the suspiciousness and curiosity of a woman and the public character and authority of a man, but he gets himself killed in the pursuit of money out of evil stories. Whereas Hitchcock, of course, never got himself killed. He did do all sorts of awful stories for the money, but he did it safe. (laughs) He didn't try to solve the problems of people. Words to the wise. (laughs) And I think, you know, I think that you've hit on something. I think in the modern world, the private detective does inhabit both this sort of male and female realm and that he has to have intuition, you know, typically ascribed to the woman. He's got to have, as we'd say in Western Pennsylvania, nebbiness, right? He's got to be prying into people's things. Uh And yet he does. He combines this with a masculine swagger and bravery and heroism and and a public responsibility, even though he does it in a way that's awfully very seedy and... And it's interesting. He lives in, right? Yes, but he's a necessity for the city, isn't he? He's part of the city. He has to exist for the city to function. But he's a kind of complement. He's in certain ways outside. Yes, he's of the world, but not in it in some ways, or in the world, but not of it. Rather, yeah. And I think this is the ultimate in the criticism of Hitchcock. This is a kind of conservative criticism, but is criticism of both conservatism and liberalism. Yes. It wants to teach liberals that the notion that you can free yourself from the law without stepping into chaos or evil or both is deluded. But it also wants to point to conservatism that its splendid past hid incredible evil. And that the reason we wear the mask of respectability is to tell ourselves there is no evil here. And that leads to something about Hitchcock. He takes something lowbrow like horror, something so ungenteel, unrespectable. And on the other hand, something as high as Renaissance Rococo Baroque paintings and sculptures and other works of art. And he puts them together in a middle-brow thing, which is American cinema. Now, that means that the low vice of curiosity is preferred to the not-quite-sound virtue of respectability. But it is done in the service of self-awareness. It is trying to tell the public, we all, the respectable people of this world, that we all, as an audience of dark, dangerous, prurient, titillating, sensationalistic stories, we're not that respectable after all. We should learn to confront some moral fallibility in us. We should consider that there is some evil among us, and we are not entirely innocent of it. The more the plot is persuasive, interesting, compelling, the more we pay attention, the more it's because it answers to something in us. There are dark passions in our souls as well. That's part of the moral teaching that movies are supposed to affect, and I think conservatives especially should learn this from Hitchcock, to learn that there are ways to deal with the culture and with society that are neither pedantic nor preachy, but are on the other hand quite plausible and persuasive. I don't think there's a finer meditation on the pervasiveness of original sin in cinema as psycho. That's a great concern for Hitchcock. This is why we started this series of podcasts on Hitchcock movies. We're going to do the next family tragedy outside the city story, which is The Birds, which also features a family outside of the city that turns out to be somehow horrifying. And it was the movie he made after Psycho, so they're connected. Then we'll do movies where churches are tied up with guilt and sin, like Vertigo. So we'll have the chance to dwell more on the meditation on evil, original sin, the difficulty of any kind of grace or redemption. And I don't think we can end the discussion of Psycho without at least briefly talking about Bernard Harmon's wonderful score for the film. Of course, here I defer to you. Hitchcock deferred to Herman. It just gave him carte blanche. Wherever Herman overrode him, he lived with it. Herman's score convinced him that this was going to be a success. It was indeed the greatest success of his career and made him enormously wealthy because the respectable studio decided to relinquish a lot of the stake in the profit just to cut his salary as a kind of punishment for his prurience. 
Well, I think one of the things that's interesting is that the studio didn't want to do this project. Hitchcock wanted to do it, so they tried to constrain him as much as possible, and he liked to stick his finger in the eye of the studio at that point. And he approached Bernard Herrmann, and they'd worked together, I believe, in eight scores and films together at that point. Herman, of course, had been as famous. He had done the score for Citizen Kane. I mean, when you think about that, it was his first picture, Citizen Kane. And his second picture made the same year, The Devil and Daniel Webster, one of my favorite films of all time. He won an Academy Award for his second film score. So Bernard Herman is really a pivotal figure in American film music history. Interestingly, Hitchcock said to him, look, Benny, he called him Benny, I'm going to be able to pay you your full salary for this picture. But as a result, we're going to have a very constrained budget so they decided to settle on a string orchestra to do all of the scoring, as opposed to the lush orchestral scores you find in some of their earlier collaborative efforts. And Herman went back. And I, I, one of the things that we talked about visual puns, when Marion Crane's sister is investigating the Bates mansion, eventually she finds her way into Norman's attic bedroom. And there are a couple of interesting things. She finds a book with no title or publisher's information on the spine and opens it and raises an eyebrow. And of course, those sort of books were Victorian pornography. And the expectation is that she's seen something pornographic. There's an open desktop phonograph with an LP on it. She walks over and peers into that. And we get a very quick cut of the label, just fast enough to see that it's the Eroica Symphony by Beethoven. Of course, if you write out Eroica, which is Italian for heroic, and look at it very quickly, it doesn't look like heroic, especially in this context, it looks like erotic. Yep. And so when Herman saw the film, he saw the film, I believe, about December and finished his score by February. I have no doubt in my mind that he saw that record, that title, and decided, aha. And he went back to an earlier composition of his own. In 1935-36, he had written a sinfonietta for string orchestra. Leaf was inspired by an earlier work by a colleague, Henry Cowell, a very experimental composer, a child prodigy, a generation older than Herman. And in 1928, he'd written a sinfonietta for a chamber orchestra. And if you listen to, they're both on YouTube, maybe we can put the links up. If you listen to the earlier 1928 piece for strings, woodwinds and brass, and then listen to Herman's string-only sinfonietta, you can definitely hear some influences and similarity, almost to the point of homage, I think, in a couple of the themes. They were both in New York City in the late 20s, early 30s, promoting experimental new music. This is the beginning of Herman's career. He worked for radio. And I think when he realized he was going to be writing for string orchestra, he naturally went back to his largest, most complex work for that ensemble. And he lifts one of the cues almost in totality. And this is the music for the Mad House discussion in the parlor. And he takes that movement from his sinfonietta and basically expands it. Later, he would revise the sinfonietta and actually take the psycho music and put it back and replace his original writing. And then he takes the Eroica Symphony by Beethoven, and I believe he takes it. Other people I've noticed have commented that the Beethoven work, of course, originally dedicated to Napoleon, is a groundbreaking work in which Beethoven takes a single melody and expands upon it for the entire first movement, which is gigantic. It's as long as most classical symphonies had been to that point. And Herman takes the structure, the shape of lines, and the same compositional techniques as Beethoven, and he applies it as if a madman was going to rewrite the Eroica for string orchestra. And I think that's the bedrock. And of course, these great crashing string chords of dissonance in the shower scene would not be possible, I don't think, without Herman's score. I think it's directly related to these great crashing chords that come at the end of the exposition of Beethoven's Eroica as we get into the development. And throughout, he plays around with this idea of madness in a way that strengthens the underlying psychology of Hitchcock's film. If you take the time and listen to the Sinfonietta by Herman online and also, the uh, suite that he later made from the Psycho score, he arranged it as a little symphony for string orchestra. You can watch them on YouTube with the scores. Then go and listen and watch the first and second movement of Beethoven's Eroica, the only two that are on that record label in Norman Bates's bedroom. And I think you can see that clearly that Herman is using this. One of the things we'd mentioned earlier, the vertical and horizontal lines, which represent order in the film vocabulary, anytime there are angles or swirls, they're associated with madness or danger. And you can find this even in the first movement he starts off with these striking chords, even though the strings are muted. They've got little blocks of wood or rubber on the bridges of the strings to consortino to make them softer. He plays against that. Again, something only a, a madman would do, right? It opens these great striking chords, just like the great striking chords that open the Eroica Symphony. And then he takes these little gems, these little germs of rhythm and motion, and he has both vertical and horizontal, but he also has circular. And he plays around with them in conversation with what Beethoven does with similar rhythmic figures in his Eroica Symphony. Really worth your time. And I think 
and I'm no expert in Bernard Herrmann's score, and maybe other people have already noticed this. I know others have noticed the similarity between the music when the car is dumped in the swamp, the burial of Marion Crane, and the opening grace notes that run up into the figures that imitate the opening figures in the funeral march movement, the slow movement, the second movement of Beethoven's Eroica. But I think there's more to it than that. I think the entire score opened up possibilities in conversation with Bernard Herrmann's earlier score from 1936. And one final point, Henry Cowell was a very tortured man who ended up in prison in California for sexual misconduct and was considered a bit mad afterwards. And both Cowell and Herman were great admirers of the sort of off-kilter insane music of Charles Ives. Cowell would go on to write a great deal about Ives one of the first people to do so. And Bernard Harmon would be one of the first people to premiere some of Ives' music, including in the first performance of his new Chambers Symphony concert of 1933. The first person that he reached out to to tell about that in the letter was Henry Cowell. So I think madness, sexual perversion, and Beethoven and Bernard Harmon's relationship to Henry Cowell all end up together in that score. Wow, this is amazing and in certain disturbing ways opposite. If there were a good thing, we'd call it serendipitous fits in a certain ironic way with the fact that Beethoven is the composer of freedom and of the yes. striving of the human soul. And the breaker of respectable traditions in classical music. Yep. Yes, it's good to learn some things about the score and to try to think about what it is that the effect of the movie is on the audience. Hitchcock supposedly did not think the movie would work without the music. We hope to have shown in talking through it that the story makes a lot of sense and is incredibly sophisticated and worthwhile. But the effect of the movie, how people experience it and what is memorable of it is something else. And that does seem, as you said about the shower scene, unimaginable without the score. It is the one constant throughout the movie, so to speak, teaching you that there is a deep, moving, serious danger that this is not just a throwaway motel or a throwaway job, that it's all common and something you've seen in every other place. It gives a certain uniqueness and grandeur to the events and an unusual dignity for a horror movie. Yeah, I think dignity, I think all of the characters, even our killer, is treated with a dignity in spite of his evilness. And I think that's very telling, too. Yeah, that's true. And thinking of him as evil acknowledges that he's a human being. It's a struggle to do, as the story suggests. The respectable yes. tendency is to deny his humanity, to explain him by subhuman forces. And to uh, want to exterminate him like one of those insects. Yep. So long as it's painless, that's the only thing that really scares us. Yep. And <laughs> uh, well, we've tried to show as much as we could the themes of innocence and respectability of the great past before civilization and the possible dangers of the new liberation after conservative civilization, how they come together and how they develop in various ways. And so we hope to have made this worthwhile listening, and we invite you to listen to our next podcast, which will be about Hitchcock's The Birds. Meanwhile, Eric, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining me, and uh, let's do this again soon. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it immensely. And yes, we must do this again. Thank you so much. All the best. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>